Okay. Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. We've uh, been having some technical difficulties today. Just Richie, by the way, I'm I, uh, not hearing the uh, the music, the audio very well, but uh, so if it's a little choppy, I apologize. Uh, welcome to the program. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful. I spoke last week about the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith becoming the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith. And I queried if this change was merely cosmetic, a, a distinction without a difference, or if it were something more substantial. Well, as we talked about last week, Pope Francis, in what was ostensibly a personal letter written to his new appointee to the prefecture of the newly renamed Dicastery, made it known that there will be real changes, which we talked about at the time. But I also said that I'd have more to say about the new prefect of the uh, doc, uh, Dicastery of Doctrine of the Faith. So to begin this week, I'd like to offer a few words about Cardinal-elect Victor Emmanuel Fernandez. He's one of several newly minted cardinals. His appointment uh, has also caused some uproar online. Cardinal-elect Fernandez is a fellow Argentine. He's a close collaborator with Pope Francis. In fact, he's been called the Pope's personal theologian. And as a former archbishop in Argentina, he's been accused of mishandling some sex abuse cases, apparently credibly, but frankly, this kind of accusation has become such standard fare in the mainstream media. I think it needs to be kind of taken cum grano solis. However, he is notorious for a couple of other reasons. First, he's generally acknowledged as the ghostwriter of Pope Francis's controversial post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, which we'll talk about a bit later, as well as authoring a book that he called Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing, uh, which it should be said is now out of print and has been removed as of last December from the publisher's website, but it's still available online, both in the Spanish original and in an unauthorized English translation. Uh, in the publisher's, publisher's description, Fernandez assured his readers that he did not write about kissing from his own personal experience. Well, that at least... But he said, uh, based on the lives of those who kiss, I want to synthesize what people feel when they think of a kiss, what they experience when they kiss. For that, I chatted at length with many people who have abundant experience in this area, and also with many young people. I also consulted many books. So, in an effort at synthesis, he says, these pages emerged in favor of kissing. I hope that they help you kiss better that they motive you, motivate you to realize the best of yourself in a kiss. Now, <laughs> where to start? Uh, having many conversations with young people about what they experience when they kiss, you know, should be a red flag, even if you had not written a book. And remember, this description, or you know, we might say confession, is from the author himself. Michael Haynes over at LifeSite News said, uh, the work is notable for its inclusion of unmistakably erotic and often ambiguous sexual relationships in which the genders of the participants are unspecified. It also contains various photos of artworks depicting people passionately kissing and embracing one another in intimate erotic positions, while the text itself is repeatedly sexually suggestive and explicit. Now, I would note that it wasn't until his appointment as prefect for the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith that he felt compelled to answer the criticisms of this rather unseemly literary effort. So in a Facebook, Facebook post from the 3rd of this month, Cardinal-elect Fernandez said that the controversy is, quote, an unethical attempt to harm him by groups opposed to Pope Francis. 
He said that when he wrote, Heal Me With Your Mouth, uh, he was just a young Jesuit priest trying to reach out to young people. And so he hit upon the idea of writing a catechesis for teenagers, quote, based on the meaning of the kiss, you know, whatever that might be. A catechesis for teenagers, he said, is not a book of theology, and went on to mention his many subsequent theological books and scholarly articles for Angelicum and the Nouvelle Review Theologique, etc. Clearly, he wants to be taken seriously. But then he says, worse still, these attacks come from Catholics in the United States, and they do not know Spanish. <laughs> really. In one instance, he says, they mistranslate the word bruja, which is witch in English. Uh, mistranslated as, well, another word that sounds like which only starts with a B. But the word in the book is bruja, and according to the cardinal-elect, they have no right to change my words. It seems they have no ethics, etc. Well, I agree that it's wrong to misrepresent what someone has written or said. I've been the victim of that myself. But is that what really happened? Uh, since the cardinal-elect desires that his critics give him the benefit of the doubt, it would only be fair for him to do the same because the alleged mistranslation of a single word does not immediately suggest bad will or intentional misrepresentation. And I say alleged mistranslation because we're talking about one single letter in one single word. Now, it seems to me it would be just as reasonable, and not to mention more in keeping with Catholic morality, for him to assume that it was a typo, or these days even autocorrect, rather than a willful mistranslation. And even if it was intentional, the difference between which and the B-word do not at all mitigate the problems inherent in heal me with your mouth. And yet this mistranslation of one letter is the best he can do. Further, to say that his critics, quote, do not know Spanish, unquote, because they come from the United States, well, that's really contemptuous and condescending nonsense. It took me all of two minutes on the internet to learn that there are some 20 Hispanophone countries in the world. That's countries with Spanish as their official language. But the country with the fourth largest Spanish-speaking population in the entire world is the United States of America. In fact, the United States has more Spanish speakers than all but three of the 20 officially Hispanophone countries, including the cardinal-elect's home country of Argentina. 14 million more, to be precise. And of the 54 million U.S. Spanish speakers, nearly 20 million of them are Catholics, including priests, bishops, and archbishops. And 12 million of them are bilingual. So in any case, an ad hominem attack on U.S. Catholics is no defense of the contents of his ill-considered book. In fact, he offers no legitimate defense at all, and no regrets. On the contrary, he said, for Pope Francis, it is important for a theologian to get down in the mud and try to use a simple language that reaches everyone. And so he is, he says, proud to have been that young parish priest who tried to reach out to everyone using the most diverse languages. Well, I didn't know that obscenity was among the diversity of languages, but if it's important to get down in the mud, well then, mission accomplished, I guess. Well, according to the Cardinal-elect's Facebook posts, what these extreme groups do is to say, look at the low quality of this theologian. Look at the nonsense he wrote. Look at the low ability he has. But the catechesis of a parish priest for teenagers cannot be asked to be a manual of theology. 
Now, his argument that he was not writing a theological manual is what we call in logic a straw man, because that's not the issue. Father Lawrence Lavozic was a fine theologian and wrote many popular books for adult Catholics. Yet he also wrote many catechetical texts for children of all ages, including teenagers. You see, it's the unseemly nature and content of heal me with your mouth that is the issue. His allegation that it was intended for teenagers just exacerbates the problem. And also, there is no dichotomy between catechesis and good theology, because the one depends upon the other. You know, as a catechist myself, not to mention the father of six kids, I'm well aware of the traditional Catholic teaching on the morality of kissing. And aside from platonic kisses between relatives, or a kiss used as, as an innocent greeting, the art of kissing, as the cardinal-elect would have it, is generally reserved for the married, for what I assume are obvious reasons that I need not elaborate here. Outside of holy matrimony, erotic kissing is at the very least an occasion of sin. And there are many fine texts on Catholic moral theology fit for teenagers, like the one we used with our own kids. Uh, Catholic Morality by Father John Laux. But if the cardinal-elect really wants to be taken seriously, it seems that he's his own worst enemy. You know, the desire to be taken seriously is usually shown in the way one presents oneself, attention to decorum, to, to protocol, etc. Perhaps you're aware that the cardinal-elect is more commonly known by his nickname, Tuco. In fact, the Facebook post we've been discussing, he signed off with the words, a big hug, Tuco, and so apparently a big hug to go with a kiss. Now, I'm not sure what that name means in English, because I've seen various definitions given for Tuco, which he spells with an H. But that's frankly beside the point. The issue is prudence. It's about lack of decorum. It's about respect for the office. Now, I know some folks will immediately say that this is not an official document. This is just a social media post. Facebook is an informal platform where celebrities typically address their quote-unquote Facebook friends in a casual way. But that's kind of the point. Because the cardinal-elect is not a pop singer or a teenage influencer. He's about to take his place as head of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. Traditionally one of, if not the, most important office uh, in the Roman Curia. And that, that just call me Tuco frivolity is frankly not in keeping with the office. This is why uh, a majority of U.S. states do not allow the use of nicknames on voter ballots. You know, I mean, I know that there are grown men that insist on be calling, you know, being called Skip or Scooter, but you can't put that on a voter ballot in most states because it suggests that the office, that the responsibility for governance is not serious or is not to be taken seriously. Perhaps you'll recall when, when Bill Clinton ran for president the first time, uh, it, was, it was an upset victory, really, because of Ross Perot. I don't think anybody really expected him to become president. But because of his informal style, a reporter asked him, if you win, how should we address you? And he said, just call me Bill. But after his election, it was made clear that the press must address him as Mr. President, in keeping with the dignity of the office. And surely a prince of the church could have at least as much respect for the Roman Curia as Bill Clinton has for the American presidency. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with lots more after this. Stay with us.
Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Shortly after the turn of the century, when my kids were still little and some yet ungotten and unborn, there began to appear a rash of children's films that deconstructed the familiar themes of fairy tales in some disturbing ways. So Shrek, Ella Enchanted, Happily Never After, the many others that followed, turned fairy tales upside down until they finally arrived at the openly sympathetic portrayal of evil characters like Maleficent or or the complete revision of a character like the Wicked Snow Queen, who's reimagined in Disney's Frozen not merely as a sympathetic character, but as an heroic one. Now, this is a subject about which much ink has already been spilled, and uh, it's a, you know too far-reaching a topic for a single podcast to do justice. But I'd like to zero in for a moment on just a single aspect, and that is how many of these films lack a Prince Charming? Or, or remake the archetypal handsome prince character into a ludicrous or, or conniving schemer like uh, Lord Farquaad in Shrek. For that matter, Shrek too doesn't scruple to make Prince Charming himself into the villain of the piece. Prince Hans in Frozen also comes to mind as yet another handsome prince who's really a duplicitous wolf in sheep's clothing. And yet we are told that it's refreshing that the handsome prince has fallen from his pedestal in, in children's fair. Because for one thing, they say, our modern girl power heroines don't need no man to rescue them. And after all, real men are nothing like Prince Charming. It's unhealthy, they say, even harmful to fill young girls' minds with such ridiculous fantasies and unrealistic and unfulfillable expectations like someday my prince will come. And so Prince Charming has become one of the many casualties of secular culture's hostility towards ideals. But from whence doth this hostility proceed? Is it because ideals are impossible to realize? Well, that's what makes them ideal, after all. Are we right to make a mockery of the ideal man? Well, we've done it before. I've just compared the hosannas of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the shouts of crucify him, at his mockery of a trial just a few days later. Well, as somebody once said, by their fruits you shall know them. So what has been the result of this hostility towards Prince Charming? Well, girls learn at an early age that any man who behaves like Prince Charming is undoubtedly a deceiver and a hypocrite. Boys learn that it's unrewarding, indeed foolish, to aspire to an ideal of manhood. And what has naturally resulted in is, you know, the vicious cycle that we see playing out today with young men becoming either effeminate on the one hand or boorish and apathetic on the other, and young women becoming more and more distrustful, disillusioned, and disappointed. So are they right? Is it better that we not aspire to ideals? Should we stick to real life and the real world, as they say? I would point out to Catholics that the cult of the saints is precisely about admiring and imitating the virtues of real men and women who have lived up to the Christian ideal. There are many examples of those who have lived lives of heroic sanctity in the real world, precisely because they understood that the real world includes both this life as well as eternity in heaven or hell. Falling short of the, of the ideals we strive to imitate is part of being human. But that is why our good Lord has given us access to divine grace, 
so that we may aspire to that which men could never achieve on their own. Now, why, why do I bring all this up? It's because of what I see happening in the church, especially in the late appointment to the prefecture of the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith. As we looked at uh, last week and in the last segment, uh, the, the new prefect of the dicastery of the doctrine of the faith is one cardinal-elect, Victor Manuel Tuco Fernandez. And it is a troubling appointment. Not least because, you know, beyond what we've already talked about, it's well known that Fernandez was the ghostwriter of Amoris Laetitia, in whose infamous chapter 8 we read of the Church's need to, quote, better recognize individual conscience in concrete circumstances, albeit with a nod to the fact that the individual conscience should be well-formed, and we're going to talk about that later. But paragraph 303 reads, Naturally, every effort should be made to encourage the development of an enlightened conscience and to encourage an ever greater trust in God's grace. Yet conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, while not yet fully the objective ideal. In any event, let us recall that this discernment is dynamic. It must ever remain open to new stages of growth and to new decisions which can enable the ideal to be more fully realized. Never reached, apparently, but more fully realized. Well, <clears throat> first off, it's certainly true that conscience can do more then recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. That is because conscience can, in fact, recognize the specific demands of the gospel in a given situation, the non-negotiable demands of the gospel, and that God has granted us the grace to live up to those demands by ensuring, as St. Paul says, that God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. Amorously, you know, by ourselves we can do nothing. Jesus says, with my help, you know, with God, all things are possible. And Amoris Letitia spends over 60,000 words trying to find a way around what our Lord taught about marriage and divorce in less than 300 words in Matthew 19. And the smoking gun is chapter 8. Obviously, the apostolic exhortation is far too long for us to offer a comprehensive analysis. So again, focus on one point. The error that moral absolutes are merely ideals, like Prince Charming. I recently ran across an article from April 2018 wherein Dr. E. Christian Brugger suggests that Amoris Laetitia, which means the joy of love, by the way, threatens the moral foundation of the Church. He does so by comparing it to the teaching of Pope St. John Paul II in his 1993 encyclical Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of Truth, which was written to correct several prevailing theological errors, one of which he called the very serious error that the Church's moral teaching is essentially only an ideal which must be adapted, proportioned, or graduated to the so-called concrete possibilities of man. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the, the quote I just read. Dr. Brugger wrote, Amoris Laetitia repeatedly refers to the objective and absolute demands of the gospel for sex and marriage as merely an ideal or a rule, 
And it says that God knows that not everyone can be expected to conform their lives fully to the objective ideal. In fact, it stigmatizes an obedience-centered approach to living the gospel as, quote, cold bureaucratic morality and nothing more than the defense of a dry and lifeless doctrine. But calls its own approach, that approach I would say of contemptible moral laxity, a, quote, message of love and tenderness. Now, ever since Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis, and his collaborators have championed the false dichotomy of encouraging, quote-unquote, merciful, case-by-case -case moral evaluation on the one hand, while denouncing the Church's traditional moral theology as casuistry on the other. Casuistry, that is, in the sense of the word that means resolving moral problems by applying theoretical rules to particular instances. Okay, which they stigmatize as coldly applying a bunch of pat answers to all cases, you know, one size fits all. But in practice, Pope Francis's approach is itself a species of casuistry in the sense of the word that means a kind of sophistry in relation to moral questions, that is, the use of, of clever-sounding but defective reasoning. For example, Amoris Laetitia refers to its proposals for living the Christian life as, quote, new pastoral methods, a, a process of accompaniment, a gradualness in pastoral care. It teaches that what's most needed is a kind of pastoral discernment that recognizes the concrete situation, and that recognizes that the concrete situation sometimes does not permit conformity to the rule without causing further sin, quote-unquote along with the equally heterodox solution that when such a situation arises, the individuals are in fact called by God to set the rule, that is, the, the demands of the gospel, aside. And yet, you know, contradictorily, like so many of these documents, Amoris Laetitia also insists that these new pastoral methods, quote, can never prescind from the gospel demands of truth and charity as proposed by the Church, unquote which is a contradiction, because unless you understand the gospel demands of truth and charity as proposed by the Church to be something altogether different than the Church's traditional teaching. And as troubling as it is to say, that seems to be precisely what our ghostwriter intended. In a recent interview, uh, Cardinal-elect Fernandez, the new prefect of the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith and ghostwriter of Amoris Laetitia, said that, quote, for many centuries, the Church was developing everything in philosophy and in a morality full of classifications, to classify people, to put labels on them. This is this is this. This one can receive communion. That one cannot receive communion. This one can be forgiven. That one cannot be forgiven. It's terrible that this has happened to us in the Church. Thank God Pope Francis is helping us to free ourselves from these patterns. Now, first, let it be said, this is an infantile caricature of the Church's teaching and practice over centuries, and a mockery of the profound theological developments and pastoral guidance of a host of saints and popes and doctors of the Church. The Church has mercifully granted that divorced and civilly remarried Catholics, who could not be granted an annulment of their valid first marriage, could yet approach Holy Communion, so long as they promised to live in continence as brother and sister rather than as man and wife, so far as, as the marital act is concerned. But this is too much. This, this, this will just lead to other sins. Really? 
See, Amoris Letitia's process of accompaniment, quote-unquote, would make the private judgment of remarried divorcees sufficient to establish invalidity of their previous marriage in their own cases. And it seems to me that, that what's being said here, plainly, is that the Catholic Church went wildly off the rails for centuries. And that Pope Francis is finally here to set things right again in, in the matter, a manner of a, a Latter-day Martin Luther. And why would I say that? Well, because to help us poor, benighted Catholics to free ourselves from the obedient-centered approach to the gospel, this Pope has officially approved a practice that contradicts the teaching of the Catholic Church dating from apostolic times, and that has been clearly and authoritatively upheld not less than a half a dozen times by his immediate predecessors, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. That is grade A, 100% pure balderdash and that's no nonsense okay when we come back we're going to be talking about the sad story of sister smile and in our last segment we'll be talking about the catholic walking dead and what i mean by that so stay tuned for that and more when we return with lots more virgin most powerful Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I wonder if you remember Sister Christina Scuccia. She's an Ursuline nun who gained international exposure back in 2014 when she appeared in full habit on several episodes of the Italian version of the TV competition show, The Voice. She sang songs by Lady Gaga, Bon Jovi, Madonna, Flash dance and dirty dancing, among others, um, including, of course, the 1983 Cindy Lauper hit "Girls Just Want to Have Fun." She was sometimes accompanied on stage by background singers who wore the same kind of immodest outfits and performed the same kind of uncouth choreography that you would expect from Lady Gaga or Madonna. And Sister Christina herself was belting out the songs and dancing and fist pumping, just like any other contestant. And the audience, including her Ursuline sisters and Mother Superior, were on their feet, clapping and dancing and screaming and eating it all up. Well, Sister Christina went on to win that year's contest, and it's debatable whether it was really because of the quality of her voice or more the novelty of a, of a habited nun performing like a profane entertainer. Well, many Catholics were all for it, of course. I mean, they're not all killjoys like me. Uh, various Catholic media types, even folks I know personally, were all excited when they found out about this Italian singing nun. Uh, she got the thumbs up on Twitter from a Vatican cardinal. She got to meet Pope Francis. Uh, she was even invited to sing at the Vatican Christmas concert. But I just discovered that last year, Sister Christina was back on Italian TV. Only this time, eight years after her, her musical triumph and 15, after 15 years in the convent, even having professed her final vows in 2019, she has now turned in her habit and called it quits. And it reminded me of another singing nun who had an international hit when I was a young boy. Her single, Dominique, and her debut album both topped the Billboard Hot 100. You remember Dominique, Anika, Nico, and however it went. <laughs> her name was uh, in... in uh, the world was Janine Deckers, but she became known as the Singing Nun. 
and she was a Belgian Dominican whose religious name was Sister Luke Gabriel. And while in the convent, a sister wrote and sang and performed her own songs for the community. And she was so well received by her sisters and visitors that her superiors encouraged her to record an album, which they would then offer to visitors and retreatments as a fundraiser for the convent. So she recorded her album on the Phillips label in 1962. And by 1963, the Dominique single became an international hit as was the album, which the album itself sold nearly 2 million copies. And Sister Luke Gabrielle became an international celebrity performing live concerts. She even appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show in January of 1964, just one month before the Beatles. In Europe, her name was Sir Sarir, Sister Smile. But she had a hard time, <clears throat> she says, living up to what she called that Girl Scout image. She got tired of being expected to smile all the time. She says her superiors edited her songs and flatly rejected the sad ones. Her second album was a flop, and she was sent to take theology courses at the University of Louvain. Now, not only was she being pulled between two worlds, right, the quiet routine of religious life on the one hand and the glitz and glamour of the entertainment biz on the other, but we need to remember that this was the 60s. It's a time of significant cultural upheaval, and, and of course, uh, Vatican II. Perhaps not the best time for a young nun to go to the University of Louvain. Sister Smile found herself uh, increasingly in disagreement with the Catholic Church and left the convent in 1966 to pursue life as a lay Dominican and as a pop singer. And she later claimed that her departure had resulted from a personality clash with her superiors and that she'd actually been forced out of the convent. And she did not fare well uh, at the record company either. First off, they made her give up her professional names, Sister, you know, Sister Smile and the Singing Nun. And, and she attempted to continue her musical career under the name Luke Dominique, trying to tie into her, uh, not only her identity as a nun, but to the hit song. And like many others, <clears throat> Catholics at that time, she was increasingly frustrated at what she perceived to be the Catholic Church's failure to fully implement the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. It's still going on today. And so she released a song in 1967 that defended the use of contraception, and it was called Glory Be to God for the Golden Pill, referring to the birth control pill. Well, as you might imagine, this did not sit well with the Catholic hierarchy and the, the uh, Catholic hierarchy in Canada, uh, you know, uh, led to having a concert in Montreal being canceled, which led to several major tour venues also canceling. And then, you know, her concert tour was effectively derailed. Then in 1968, she wrote a book of inspirational poems, but that also failed to gain an audience. So turning back to music, she released yet another album uh, and a single called I Am Not a Star in Heaven. And she developed a repertoire of religious songs. But success still eluded her, and she blamed the new album's failure on not being denied the or on being denied the use of the stage names by which she'd become known. Uh, a second single from the album, Sister Smile is Dead, <laughs> yikes, also failed to hit the charts. And Janine Decker's turned to teaching disabled youngsters in Belgium, uh, eventually opening her own school for autistic children. Uh, she then suffered a nervous breakdown, followed by two years of 
psychotherapy. While at the University of Louvain, she had reconnected with a friend from her youth, uh, Annie Pecher, or Pecher. The, the two developed a very close relationship and would share an apartment until their deaths. Deckers vehemently denied speculation that she and Annie were in a lesbian relationship, but her biographer, Catherine Suavat, asserts that despite that denial, they did, in fact, have a, a carnal relationship. But, you know, her, her denial is, you know, perhaps understandable for a wannabe celebrity in the 1960s because homosexuality was still a scandal back then. But then came the 1970s and the Catholic charismatic renewal. In 1973, Cardinal Suenens, he of the seamless garment argument, requested that she write songs for the charismatic movement. And this at last led to a successful, if brief, return to the stage. Once again performing as Sister Smile, she released another album in 1979 made up of what she called Honest Religious Songs and claiming that the album would finally help listeners to, quote, know who I really am, unquote. Unfortunately, in the late 1970s, she also ran into some serious financial problems. In 1982, she tried one once more to, to score a hit as Sister Smile with a disco version of Dominique. And which, you know, did not fail to or failed to connect and would be her last attempt to resume his singing career. And then in March of 1985, the former singing nun and her partner, Annie Pecher, committed suicide by overdosing on barbiturates and alcohol. And in their suicide note, they said that they had not given up their faith and desired to be buried together with the funeral rites of the Catholic Church. Uh, I dare say that the suicide pact might suggest that they did, in fact, give up their faith, and I don't know if they were granted a Catholic burial, but they are interred together, and the inscription on their mutual tombstone reads, I saw her soul fly through the clouds. It is a line taken from the song, Luc Dominique. And so ends the tragic tale of the original singing nun. Now, coming back to the present, Christina Scuccia appeared once again on an Italian talk show called Verissimo in last November. She came out uh, dressed all in red, high heels, tight pants, sporting a nose ring, and explained how her fame and the praise that she drew from musical icons such as Madonna was, was thrilling and motivating at first. But then she began to feel the pressure of all that media exposure. And so retreating into convent life was, she said, initially a relief, but became, quote-unquote, suffocating. And during this time, her father fell ill, and taking leave uh, from the convent to be with him, she says she experienced a freedom that she had not felt in a long time, being able to decide simple things for herself, such as eating what she wanted and when she wanted. And this led, she says, to a deep crisis. So what did she do? She began to see a therapist. I suspect you know what comes next. She says, I could no longer figure out who I was. I never questioned God, but my growth could no longer fit within the rules. Sound familiar? She was asked about romance, and she said, it's not a priority right now. I'm in love with life and with myself. You have to love yourself to be able to love others, which is true, but I'm not entirely sure 
what she means by that. Today, Christina lives in Spain and works as a waitress as she continues to pursue a career in music. Somewhat chillingly, uh, in light of that other story, she added, I live with a smile. Well, I certainly pray for a better outcome for this former singing nun. But I consider this a cautionary tale, especially for religious superiors. Religious superiors who would catapult a young nun into the, the, the seductive and, and overwhelming world of entertainment without considering, perhaps, the words of Jesus, that you cannot serve both God and mammon. And that's no nonsense. Um, coming up, we're going to talk about conscience and uh, in a segment that I call the Catholic Walking Dead. Uh, you know, back in the second segment, I said that uh, Amoris Letitia says that the church needs to better recognize individual conscience in concrete circumstances, but that it gives a nod to the fact that individual conscience should be well-formed and th that we would talk about it uh, later in the program. Well, that's coming up. The formation of conscience is largely what's missing from the lives of Catholic laity today because they're not taught about how important it really is. And, and just to demonstrate how far we've strayed in this regard, I will quote uh, several times from no less a definitive sorts than the documents of Vatican II. So when people said that went out with Vatican II, we're going to find out if that's true or not when we return with more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Well, hello and welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I want to begin our, our talk about conscience with a quote from the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Freedom, Dignitatis Humanae. It says, The highest norm of human life is the divine law, eternal, objective, and universal, whereby God orders, directs, and governs the entire universe and all the ways of the human community by a plan conceived in wisdom and love. Human beings have been made by God to participate in this law, with the result that under the gentle disposition of divine providence, they can come to perceive ever more fully the truth that is unchanging. <laughs> Just compare that to some of the things that we've all you know read today. <clears throat> According to the decree on the media of social communication, intermerifica, it says the council proclaims that all must hold to the absolute primacy of the objective moral order. That is, this order by itself surpasses and fittingly coordinates all other spheres of human affairs. For human beings who are endowed by God with the gift of reason and summoned to pursue a lofty destiny are alone affected by the moral order in their entire being. And likewise, if human beings resolutely and faithfully uphold this order, they will be brought to the attainment of complete perfection and happiness. So, as these words from Vatican II confirm, if we wish to be happy and 
rational and fully human, which includes attaining eternal beatitude, we must obey the law of God. The truth does not change. The church's traditional teaching has not changed. The law of God is the highest norm by which Catholics must govern our lives. And I think this cannot be overemphasized today, especially in light of the many conflicts between virtue and license that plague our culture. Obviously, moral questions are a matter of constant debate in our society. And unfortunately, for the last many years, within the church herself. This is why, as Catholics, those of us who enjoy the right to vote have an obligation to exercise that right, to support candidates of experience and Christian principles who may be expected to ask, act justly in questions of morality. You know, I've often heard, uh, you know, in the last 25 years from conservative Catholic commentators that U.S. Catholics could change the course of our country in the direction of Christian virtue in a single generation if we would only, quote, we vote exclusively for pro-life, pro-family candidates and say no to any politician who advocates for what my wife has termed the wokeness monster. So what these commentators have been requesting is that Catholics vote their conscience. Unfortunately, the trouble is that Catholic, vorture, Catholic voters who have given us the likes of Joe Biden and, and Nancy Pelosi, not to mention Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the squad seem to think that they have voted their conscience. It's their so-called conscience that's precisely the problem. Now, conscience is sometimes called the voice of God within us insofar as it reflects the moral law and, and the law that's, that's written on the heart, according to St. Paul. And the same conscience applies both to individual acts of moral judgment and the faculty that makes the judgments, this, this faculty is human reason exercising its natural function of recognizing what is morally good and what is morally evil. And as a faculty of moral judgment, conscience admits to greater or lesser development depending upon the person. However, as St. Paul admonished the Romans, no one with the use of reason can be ignorant of basic moral precepts. You know, for example, that, that murder is morally wrong and that to love and respect your parents is morally good. Now, according to uh, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, that's Gaudium et Spes, in the depths of their conscience, human beings detect a law that they do not impose upon themselves, but which holds them to obedience. In a wonderful manner, conscience reveals that that law which is fulfilled by love of God and neighbor. Hence, the more right conscience holds sway, the more persons and groups turn away from blind choice and strive to be guided by the objective norms of morality. Conscience frequently errs from invincible ignorance without losing its dignity. The same cannot be said for a person who cares little for truth or goodness, or for a conscience which by degrees grows practically sightless as a result of habitual sin. You know, can the people who accuse me of being against Vatican II because I go to the traditional Mass kindly read the documents, please? Because Vatican II says that for Catholics to follow our conscience means that we have an ongoing obligation to conform our conscience to the moral law of God as expressed in sacred scripture 
and tradition and taught by his holy catholic church you know in, in the same way you have to keep readjusting a mechanical clock to solar time catholics must consistently adjust our conscience over and over again to what god demands of us now why, why this constant adjustment it's not that morality changes but that our conscience is fallible and therefore we can get it wrong so no morality does not change on the contrary there is an unchanging infallible truth to which we must consistently conform our life the truth that christ teaches us through his holy church so although conscience may be god's voice within us that voice is often drowned out by other voices of the world the flesh and the devil it is only by having a well-formed conscience that we can be sure that the interior voice we hear is really his. You know, Dignitatis Humanae says, many pressures are brought to bear upon the people of our day to the point where the danger arises lest they lose the possibility of acting on their own judgment. On the other hand, not a few can be found who seem inclined to use the name of freedom as a pretext for refusing to submit to authority and making light of the duty of obedience. This text is frankly prophetic. And here's the point. If you dissent from Catholic teaching on faith and morals, either in whole or in part, that's apostasy or heresy, if you never study Catholic doctrine, if you never uh, listen to a solid homily, never engage in prayer or spiritual reading, then your conscience becomes a deceitful voice. In other words, a blind guide. And in circumstances where a Catholic's blinded by habitual sins or becomes reprobate, that is to say obstinate in sin, refusing correction, right? Do you know anybody like that? When, when such a one declares, I'm following their conscience, this most likely means that he or she is yielding to their own disordered desires. Truly, the blind leading the blind. For all practical purposes, such a conscience is dead. Just as a, a Catholic in mortal sin remains a Catholic, but a dead member of the body of Christ. And that's why the, some of the teaching in chapter 8 of Amor Amoris Laetitia is nonsense. Catholics that flaunt the teaching of the Church and refuse obedience to its lawful authority in matters of faith and morals and encourage others to do the same, even if they're highly pleased clergy, they're not acting in good conscience. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. We live in a world where access to the true teaching of the Church is more available than ever before. The catechisms, the Holy Bible, the documents of Vatican II, not to mention Vatican I and Trent and the Summa, all, all of these things are available online in English for free. It's preposterous to suggest that well-educated Catholics who attained high office either in the Church or even secular politics can lead or plead invincible ignorance. When such a Catholic willfully misrepresents Church teaching or appeals to conscience while flouting the law of God, flaunting the law of God, I should say. He's not an ignoramus, he's, well, at best, a spiritual zombie, the Catholic walking dead. A person with a well-formed conscience, on the contrary, turns from blind choice and strives to be guided by the objective norms of morality. Now, Archbishop Fulton Sheen famously asked, who's going to save the Church? Not our bishops, he said, not our priests and religious, it's up to you, the laity. You have the minds, the eyes, and the ears to save the Church. Your mission is to see that your priests act like priests, your bishop act like bishops, your religious act like religious. As many times as I've heard that in the last quarter of the century, it, it frankly failed to resonate with me, because he gave us the mission but not the marching orders. What's the mechanism by which we will see to it that our priests act like priests and so on? We have to pray and make sacrifices for our shepherds, of course. 
We shouldn't rush to judgment. But we should also not be afraid to call them out when they're not following the dictates of the gospel. And we should not be intimidated into ignoring the plain evidence of our five senses. When we're told that morality is done on about face or that we're uh, suddenly called to embrace something that their father has prohibited, that, that went out with Vatican II, we have a right to demand straight answers backed up with concrete evidence. And if such is not forthcoming, we have a right to know why. I was reading an article just the other day. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't recall who wrote it or even what it was about specifically. Uh, but the author made reference to the Arian heresy that almost eclipsed the early church. Almost all the clergy succumbed to the error. Even the Pope failed at least to condemn it and even excommunicated Athanasius, one of the very few bishops who resisted. Athanasius and Eusebius and a mere handful of others. But while history records their names and deeds, the fact is they could not have prevailed if they did not have the support of the faithful. The faithful who in the main did not fall into heresy. See, this is the key to uh, Archbishop Sheen's admonition, that we support bishops and priests who are faithful to the teaching of the Church, and that we should support them, uh, and perhaps even especially support them, if they are, quote-unquote, canceled for their fidelity to the perennial teachings of the Church. And here is a matter in which you can let your conscience be your guide. And that's no nonsense. Oh my, well, we've made it through another one. Uh, um, technical uh, difficulties notwithstanding. And it was great to have you along with us. And I look very much forward to doing this all again next week. I want to say thank you also. I, If you were not listening live, uh, I was on the Terry Barber, uh, Terry and Jesse show with Terry Barber uh, right before this. So both of those will be available to uh, watch or listen to on demand at vmpr.org or by downloading our uh, vmpr smartphone app which is free of course and while you're at vmpr.org downloading the app or uh, looking for the shows that you'd like to um, watch or listen to please don't be afraid to uh, click that donate button and uh, send a little something our way Summertime is a very difficult time for um, apostolates, especially small ones like ours. And we do appreciate both your spiritual support, your prayers, and what financial support you can give us. You can even become a monthly donor uh, if you have the means and the inclinations, and I'd be happy if you did. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, want to also encourage you, you can visit our Full Sheen Ahead YouTube channel where they excerpt the program. So you can get a little taste of the different shows and see what you might like. And until next time, God bless and 